Hello and welcome to episode number 68 of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, November 2nd, 2009. On this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, we are joined by John Perlin, who is the author of the book, A Forest Journey, The Role of Wood in the Development of Civilization. Now, previously in episode number 66 of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, I had unilaterally discussed this book and some aspects of it. Without John's participation, I had sent John an email, but that got lost in the ether, And after publishing that episode, John actually took the initiative and got in touch with me and thanked me for talking about the book and expressed interest in in appearing on the Agro-Innovations podcast and talking about uh, the book A Forest Journey in more detail. So uh, very glad that you did that, John, and very good to have you here with us on the Agro-Innovations podcast. Welcome. Uh, Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Um, So let's start, and now that our listeners have some background on the Book of Forest Journey, uh, let's maybe flesh out some more of the details and some more of your thoughts on uh, maybe your thinking has evolved a little bit since you've written the book, and we can talk about some of those aspects and some of our current current situation with wood and energy. Um, let's start by talking about the relationship between forests and wood and the development of technology. Okay. Well, um, wood uh, started it all because without fire, uh, the human uh, species could have uh, never got out of Africa. In fact, uh, the uh, lack of wood due to uh, the um, glaciation um, stymied the uh, settlement of the Western Hemisphere until um, things got warmer and uh, wood grew up to the um, area of the land bridge so people could make fires as they um, traveled downward. Uh, So our whole civilization actually is based on um, fire and for example, when we turn on the key, we call it ignition, which comes from igneous, um, which um, means uh, fire. And so uh, just about everything we do depends on fire. And um, until recently, uh, fire was uh, like synonymous with wood. Yes, and fire in some religions was also revered uh, as a god or, you know, as a as a sacred symbol. Um, obviously, we've maybe gotten away from that a little bit. I believe Zoroastrianism is is the worship of fire. Well, actually, uh, in the most uh, native uh, oh, um, legends and uh, native mythology, um, fire plays a, a major role. For example, in uh, Greek myth uh, with uh, Prometheus uh, stealing fire. And the reason why he stole fire was because um, all the uh, attributes for survival were given to animals, and humans had uh, were left with nothing. And the only way they could uh, survive, as uh, Prometheus thought, was uh, through fire. And through fire, he said, people became gods. 
and he was actually punished for for providing people with fire. Exactly because uh, people uh, could uh, actually um, take on the role of gods because they could do everything that the gods could do, and that is, uh, you know, create um, metals from stone. Uh, uh, that's a very interesting uh, aspect. You talk about technology; it is all our um, cultural ages are um, separated by the different um, metals. And none of those um, metals would have been possible without fire uh, and without uh, wood uh, to uh, make those fires to extract the uh, metal uh, from the uh, stone or the ore. How has our perception of the forest changed and evolved through history? Well, um, actually, um, always uh, the forest has uh, been looked at as uh, by uh, the urban areas as something uh, alien. Um, ever ever since uh, urban culture evolved, which was I think about fourteen year, thousand years ago, uh, we've looked at the forest as something um, uh, foreign and something uh, a bit dangerous. But that's the urban people, the uh, people who lived in the forest saw it as their sustenance because the forest provided everything. Uh, not only did it provide the wood, but it also provided the, I guess you, I guess you would call it, call it the place where um, all their uh, food uh, came from. Uh, for example, um, all the uh, wild animals survived in the forest and all the uh, fish, for example, lived in the non-polluted rivers. And once you removed those trees, the rivers became polluted. The ships, uh, the fish died, and um, the animals uh, went somewhere else. In fact, that's why the conflict between the uh, Americans and the Native Americans was uh, inevitable, because the Americans wanted the forests uh, for lumber to uh, raise the capital for their uh, uh, farms. And the Native Americans needed the forest uh, for sustenance. Well, one of the things that I conjure up sort of in my uh, culturally influenced mythological image of the forest uh, probably comes to me from my childhood and from hearing different stories and seeing different images uh, in books and on television is, uh, you know, the forest as this place where wicked and unspeakable things are kind of happening at night and witches in the forest and, um, you know, mystical events occurring in the forest. I wonder what your thoughts are about that in our popular perception. Well, uh, that's... um a uh, urban perception. Um, the, um, like I say, like the uh, people, um, the, the first people uh, actually worshipped the forest. In fact, uh, the uh, Germans uh, who so valued the forest had very, very draconian uh, punishments uh, for people who, um, like, used uh, or destroyed uh, timber. Uh, without a, a purpose. In fact, what they would do is they would nail their uh, belly buttons to uh, the tree and then wrap them around the uh, the 
Wow. And yet, uh, the, I mean, the, the relationship that we've had with Forrest that you describe in your book has been one of really constant exploitation. And especially empires, uh, they just tend to use these forests until there's nothing left. And that often, as you describe in your book, uh, marks the decline of that empire uh, when they reach that area of what I described in my last episode as peak wood uh, or peak lumber, they inevitably begin a decline. Well, um, it's one of these, um, you know, uh, dilemmas um, or paradoxes where you need the wood to survive, but to survive you need to remove the wood. Uh, For example, uh, Isaiah writes in uh, the uh, Old Testament uh, that the uh, cedars of Lebanon, that the pines of Lebanon, uh, that the oaks of Lebanon rejoiced when they heard that King Sargon uh, the Great was dead because he would no longer come and cut them down. And so this has basically uh, been uh, the story uh, for uh thousands of years. Actually, uh, the first written document called the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, talks in great detail about the forest as the abode of the gods and the uh, first uh, invasion of heaven on earth uh, by uh, Gilgamesh and the inevitable um, snaking down of the uh, timber uh, on the river and the uh, mountains being bare. And as uh, Gilgamesh killed the uh, god who uh, protected uh, the forest, the uh, trees all the way from the Euphrates uh, to uh, Mount Harmon in uh, where Israel is now uh, cried because they knew of their fate. Yes, and it also reminds me of... Um the books written by Tolkien, where actually the forests literally rise up and rebel and wage war against the warmongering industrialist wizard Saruman. And actually, uh, Neil Kramer, who I appeared with not too long ago on the Sea Realm podcast, has written a pretty good interpretation of this on his blog, and I will link to that in, in the show notes. Now, I also wanted to ask you, Uh, how human beings' relationships to forest have influenced language and vice versa? Well, um, for example, the uh, word uh, ule and materia, um, which um, mean um, material in Greek and Latin, uh, also uh, mean uh, wood, because wood was the material uh, from uh, which uh, everything was made. And so um, there there you go. I mean, you see that um, influence. Or, for example, the word architron, um, which now uh, we get our word for uh, architect, means a worker of wood, because all the um, houses uh, were at one time built of wood before we... Uh, removed that uh, wood and then had to go to stone. In fact, um, one of the interesting things is that the um, columns that we associate with uh, stone uh, were originally uh, made of uh, timber, and the reason why you have the fluting in the stone is to um, 
mimic uh, the former um, timber uh, columns. So the, the, the columns were replaced by wood or the, the marble columns that we see in a lot of the old classical architecture were just designed to mimic those older wood wood type columns. Well, they actually uh, replaced the wood as wood became uh, as large as large as large uh, trees became scarce. Uh, in the early days, like in uh, Crete, uh, they still have the uh, carbonized uh, remains of the wood that used to hold up the palaces. Hmm, that is uh, very so, interesting. so the so the so the original um, columns uh, that uh, held up the stately palaces uh, were always made of wood. Can you talk about the importance of the white pines in North America? Well, the white pines of North America are a good example of the significance of wood in. Um, political and uh, military uh, hegemony. England depended on what they called the wooden walls to protect their um, kingdom. The wooden walls were, of course, ships. And originally, the English got their uh, shipping timber, especially their masting timber, uh, from Scandinavia. But as they uh, cut down all the uh, t masting timber uh, from uh, Scandinavia, uh, the trees no longer grew big enough uh, to uh, mast these huge ships called uh, ships of the realm. Uh, they were ships that needed uh, great balance because you had maybe two or three hundred cannons to fire at one time. Uh, so when the English came to America and saw this plethora of these huge pines that they could uh, mass their timber with, they um, immediately uh, saw the uh, panacea uh, to their dilemma. However, the Americans uh, saw the white pines, these huge pines, as the means of getting capital by uh, cutting them down and making them as um, lumber uh, to sell uh, to get the uh, money to uh, build their farms. And so, here you had the first um, inevitable uh, conflict between the English and the Americans, and it played itself out in the White Pines of New England. In fact, you had the first acts of violence against the Crown uh, to protect um, the uh, White Pines for the use of lumber. And when the English tried to reassert their uh, power, you had the first uh, tea party, not in the uh, Boston Harbor, uh, but in the White Pines, where the colonialists uh, played Indian and actually killed uh, several of the king's uh, men who were trying to protect the timber. And then the English passed various laws, uh, environmental laws, uh, to protect that growth and the uh, Americans, and this shows uh, another continuum, the uh, litigiousness of America, used lawyers uh, to get around the uh, laws. And, of course, the eagles, the, the American bald eagles, saw the white pines as a good place to build a nest. So there was also, uh, you know, wildlife consequences with uh between these this geopolitical conflict surrounding the white pines 
Uh, also, uh, go ahead. Also, this is this is why the Native Americans uh, sided with the uh, British. Um, was that the British, once they saw that uh, they couldn't keep the Americans out of the White Pines, they saw a a vast storehouse for their uh, navy uh, beyond the Appalachian Mountains. So they uh, declared it a reserve forever. And one of the main aspects of the revolution was to uh, free uh, that impediment and allow Americans to go over the Appalachians and uh, settled there. Uh, So the uh, Indians uh, looked at the um, reserve that the British were um, establishing as a permanent uh, living space uh, where they could freely hunt and live their um, lives as usual. In fact, uh, the uh, trees were so immense in uh, the uh, Ohio, Indiana, for example, that you had sycamores uh, that had a girth of uh, 72 inches, for example, and it supported um, such wildlife as millions of uh, buffalo uh, that uh, lived in the forest right by the uh, Alleghenies in places like uh, western Pennsylvania. Yeah, and that goes to show just how really difficult it is for people to take the long view of things. The British trying to reserve this area so that they would have access to a resource that was uh, really based on one specific um, technological paradigm for you know that was the basis of their world empire and world dominance. And of course, 200 years later. Uh, that type of naval dominance was completely supplanted by fossil fuels. Now, I'm reading a book uh, that was recommended by someone who is a frequent listener to this show, and this book is called Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott. One of the things he addresses early on in the book is German forestry, which is really an attempt to quantify and organize forests for productive purposes, but in a very limited and narrowly defined fashion. Um, essentially what was done under this German forestry was they transformed forest into monoculture tree plantations. What are your thoughts about this type of thinking and what does it tell us about our relationship with the forest? Well, it tells us that we look at the forest as just another uh, food crop and um, it's like a, a monomania where we don't understand that the forest uh, supports uh, so much variety. And the uh, Americans uh, actually took that um, ideology uh, from the Germans uh, to uh, run uh, the forestry of the uh, 19th uh, century. And people like John Muir opposed that viewpoint uh, because they saw the um, ecological nature of the forest. Yes, and I was a, a student of forestry uh, in the in the late 90s. Um, and I can say that, that back then, uh, that mentality was still very much prevalent. Um, most of the quantifying of the forest was really focused on board feet, but it was starting to change. Now, I don't know how much it has changed in the past 10 or 12 years or so, 
but uh, it's it's interesting to note that even you know in the in the late 20th century, early 21st century, that was really the predominant mindset. Although that that paradigm was showing some cracks. Um, I, I think there's really a sense that wood and non-renewable resources like oil have many parallels. Where do you see that those parallels exist? And where do you see that those similarities start to break down? Well, I don't see uh, any um, breakdown. The uh, parallels are tremendous. Um, what uh, happens is that everybody thinks of wood as a uh, inexhaustible resource at first. And then as we um, cut down the trees, um, we start to realize uh, that it is finite. And what makes it finite is just like um, oil. We'll never run out of oil, but we'll run out of exhaustible, uh, accessible oil. Sorry, We'll run out of accessible oil. And the same thing happened with wood. Is For example, in England, they did not run out of um, wood itself. What they did was they ran out of wood that was accessible. And what I mean by accessible is after a certain amount of uh, distance, it became too expensive to transport that um, wood from um, the um, bodies of uh, water. They usually, in um, Europe and also um, the Mediterranean, uh, they needed to timber uh, near a body of water so they could float the uh, logs down. Once you got, say, 20 or 21 miles away from a river, it um, no longer was um, profitable uh, to, um, you know, transport that uh, timber that great distance. So what happened in England um, was um, you uh, still had a lot of uh, lumber uh, timber left um, when people talked about running out of supplies, but they were talking about accessible supplies. And we're talking about the same thing with uh, petroleum is... Um, we uh, will always have petroleum, but the question is, uh, how far and how uh, you know deep uh, will it be? Yes, and it reminds me of the the ridiculous argument that some naysayers to uh, peak oil and peak resources is that uh, you know the center of the world is is oil. It's filled with oil. If we could just get to it, now whether that's true or not, uh, even if it was true, it, it seems pretty ridiculous to think that we could drill down to the center of the of the earth and extract oil so that we can drive around in SUVs. Also also another parallel to uh, oil and wood is uh, both oil and oil and wood are uh, stored sunlight. And we use that stored sunlight which we call uh, carbon uh, to uh, for for our energy. And so uh, basically what we're doing is we're uh, using uh, solar energy, but in a stored form. And uh, all that petroleum is actually um, our old uh, plants and uh, animals uh, that um, inhabited the Earth uh, millions of years ago. Yes, it's definitely our, our natural capital that we are spending, and um, we should definitely ask the question if we feel like we're spending it wisely. Now, the peak wood episode, uh, which I referred to earlier, in which I discuss your book, generated a lot of discussion amongst our listeners. 
One listener suggests that burning logs for heat is ridiculous and wasteful. Uh, thermodynamically, he's probably right, but in an energy descent scenario, how orderly do you think our management of forests will be? Um, how orderly will our um, uh, our growth of uh, trees be? Is that the question? Well, our management of the resources in the forest. I mean, do you think that will be well organized um, in terms of extracting those resources and using them? Or do you feel like maybe it'll be more of a free-for-all where everybody's just kind of getting what they can and using it for whatever they can? Well, it's always been a free-for-all. Uh, it never uh, stops because when people uh, want something and people um, want to make money, uh, they're very uh, loath uh, to uh, just uh, stop or be uh, prudent. Um, as we see uh, or saw in the American forest, um, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to fathom that the um, um, area of the Middle West, uh, Indiana, uh, Ohio, for example, Kentucky, uh, were once as uh, lush and um, as uh, great as the uh, Amazon forest, and yet um, they've been described by people who came there in the uh, 18th century as um, diverse in uh, animal life and as uh, high and mighty as uh, any trees you would see in the Amazon. And yet we uh, removed all that. And it's also hard to envision if you travel in the East Coast that the uh, white pines of uh, New England uh, used to be fitting for uh, you know the great mass. Well, I mean, this is something. This is something that no longer exists anymore. One of the, I mean, the central thesis I was trying to convey when I initially decided to discuss your book was the idea that peak wood uh, led to peak oil, which potentially will lead back to peak wood again. Uh, as oh, we def oh, de go ahead. That, that's that's an excellent point because. It was the uh, running out of wood uh, that led uh, to the uh, use of uh, coal and brought us into the age of fossil fuels. Uh, the, um, the learning of how to uh, chark um, coal uh, so it could uh, imitate uh, charcoal uh, for the... Um, metallurgical uh, extraction of uh, iron from stone um, resulted in the Industrial Revolution. It was this um, symbiotic relationship uh, between uh, the production of iron and um, coal uh, that made the uh, Industrial Revolution possible. And the only why, the reason people uh, went from uh, trees to, um, or biomass, I like to call it the age of biomass, um, left the age of biomass um, was because of the um, scarcity of uh, trees. What, now, what, what are the implications of moving into a second age of biomass? I think sometimes people have false expectations. Um, naturally, our technological capabilities are 
greater than what they were 200 years ago or even 100 years ago at the at the real twilight of the of the wood or the biomass age but moving into a second age of biomass are people's expectations false in the sense that they believe they can maintain the the lifestyle that we have now and the and the social order that we have now with really what in all uh, for all effects and purposes will be a much reduced energy diet well i think first of all uh, the idea that uh, wood is a renewable resource is uh, questionable, uh, as we see from the forest journey, uh, that every society, uh, and, and in fact, uh, people are having the same mirage right now, uh, that wood is like uh, infinite. Um, so um, I think that's the um, major uh, fallacy. The fallacy is that... Um, you know, there's uh, an infinite amount of land uh, to grow the um, wood, right? And um, I, I think the uh, real um, possibility is the uh, combination of uh, hydropower, wind, and solar. That's, that's something else because uh, the um, sun will be shining uh, for um, as long as we can, like, uh, exist, right? Because once the sun stops to shine, then humans will no longer um, inhabit the planet. Sure, but even with wind and solar and, and hydro and geothermal, I wonder uh, how much of a reduced you know, caloric energy diet our civilization will be on. Well, uh, for example... Um, in housing, if you like super insulate, uh, then you can have. Uh, I've just been reading about this uh, another project I'm doing because um, I also work in uh, solar energy. Is that super insulated houses could basically avoid all the uh, need uh, for any kind of heating oil? Well, I hope to address some of these issues in uh, future podcasts with other guests. Um, but we are about out of time. John Perlin, thank you so much for participating and for getting in touch with me. Thank you so much for your book, A Forest Journey. Um, I really recommend that people pick this book up. It's quite enlightening. And if you enjoyed this episode and the previous episode of the podcast where we discuss that, then you will definitely enjoy this book. And I will uh, link to... John Perlin's webpage, where I'm sure uh, there are places where you can get this book. So thank you very much, well, John uh, Perlin. I'd like to tell people there's a new edition out. Go ahead. Uh, it, and it's called A Forest Journey, uh, The Story of Wood and Civilization. Now, can people get that book uh, via your website? Well, they can actually get the book out from Amazon. That's the easiest way. Okay. Well, I will link to um, the website with... Uh, I will link to Amazon.com, uh, an actual page where you can pick up that book. Well, I hope I um, gave some uh, good ideas in this uh, interview. Absolutely. And again, thank you very much for participating. Oh, you're welcome. That concludes my interview with John Perlin author of the book, A Forest Journey. 
And episode number 66 of the Agro Innovations podcast is also available online at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. And you can find episode number 66 there on the podcast page where I discuss peak wood, which was the precursor to this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast. So if you have not had a chance to listen to that, then I encourage you to do so because it includes a lot more information about John Perlin's book, A Forest Journey. And the book is several hundred pages, so you can imagine that even after about an hour of discussion and interview, uh, we have not touched on all the interesting facts and pieces of information in that book. And the people who listened to episode number 66 of the Agro Innovations podcast were really active on the comment thread uh, for that episode. And I'd like to say I really appreciate that. And if you have anything to say about this or any of the episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast, I do read all of the comments. I don't respond to all of them. But I, I really do appreciate it, and it, I think, adds a whole nother level of quality to the podcasts themselves, the page on which the podcasts are published, and just the general discussion surrounding uh, any given episode of the Agro Innovations podcast. So I strongly encourage you, if you have a comment uh, that you'd like to share, to go to agroinnovations.com slash podcast, uh, pick the episode that you want to comment on, and you can do so fairly easily. Uh, no registration is required. You can even do so anonymously. So I greatly uh, appreciate it when people do participate. Agroinnovations is on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. And I am also on Facebook. Uh, my Facebook name is Frank Aragona. So you can find me on Facebook as well. And all updates related to the Agro Innovations podcast are published both on Twitter and on Facebook. So if uh, you prefer to follow that way, you can do so. You can subscribe to the RSS feed for the Agro Innovations podcast on the website. You can also subscribe to the comments feed on the website. Or if you prefer to do so through iTunes, you can subscribe to the Agro Innovations podcast via iTunes. And I'd like to conclude by reminding listeners that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit, visit creativecommons.org. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations podcast. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.